0: Well, good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles uh, with me, open up to, to Romans chapter 5. Uh, that's where we will uh, be this morning. And as you turn there, I want to start off our celebration of Resurrection Sunday by talking about Christmas. Uh, parents, it's amazing how, how the, the toys that your, your children were begging you for, I'm pleading with you for, just months ago, have lost their appeal. right? Uh, the, the, the toys that they so desperately wanted and couldn't stop thinking about are now maybe somewhere in uh, a box in the closet or maybe in the garage. Uh, it's amazing how uh, true the oft-repeated saying is that familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, that as we become more and more familiar with something, uh, it loses uh, its appeal. It's the law of diminishing Returns, so to speak, uh, and sometimes that can happen with with spiritual matters. Uh, as Christians, we become very well acquainted with the cross and with the empty tomb. We come, we become very acquainted with Christ crucified and Christ risen. Uh, but. Uh, These two things that are extremely familiar to us must never lose their uh, appeal, they must never lose their importance, uh, and they must never diminish our appreciation for what Christ has done on our behalf in both the cross and in his resurrection. More often than not, we need to be uh, reminded of things that we have already learned rather than just learning new things. If you're there uh, with me uh, in Romans, uh, as we, we get to that, if you look at Romans 1, Paul uh, had a desire. As he's, he's writing to people who already know Christ. He's writing to believers in the city of Rome. And look at what he says in Romans 1.15. says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul couldn't wait to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to people who already knew it, who already were familiar with it, who already loved Christ. He couldn't wait to proclaim this message of simple truth, right? That God is holy, that man is sinful, that Christ died for sinners, and now all people everywhere are called to place their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. Elsewhere in his letters, in 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says this, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, by his craftiness your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. The gospel is simple. It's a simple set of truths, and our devotion to Christ doesn't need to be complex. It's a simple devotion that Christ calls us to to worship Him, to build our lives upon Him rather than upon our own wisdom, to trust not in ourselves but in His atoning death on the cross. And that is the essence of what we want to look at today. Is As we turn from Romans 1 to Romans 5, Paul is going to be writing to the Romans and he's going to be explaining salvation to them. Uh, and Romans is his magnum opus, uh, his greatest work. Uh, And in this letter, Paul is going to remind them of what they already know and what they have believed. And in this section in in Romans chapter 5, verses 6-11 through that we're going to read, he's giving them assurance of what they have believed, that God will finish the work that he has begun. Read with me, beginning in in Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time... Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, How amazing those verses. On Friday night, we, we looked at verses 6, 7, and 8, uh, seeing the love of God that he demonstrated by sending his son to the cross. And God's saying, it's rare for a human to die for another human to sacrifice themselves, but it's, it occasionally happens. But, but God sent his son not to die for the good or the righteous, but for the ungodly, for the sinners. And that is a demonstration of his love for us, and, and now this morning we look at verses 9, 10, and 11, which show us uh, uh, Paul's advancing his argument and concluding his argument of why we can be assured of the salvation that he speaks of. Uh, And as as he does this, he's going to use uh, logic. He's going to present a a case here, and he's going to do it in very Jewish fashion. In in the Jewish way of uh, reasoning and uh, arguing, uh, they often uh, make an argument from what they would call from light to heavy, or in our American uh, terms, from lesser to greater. We we would say that uh, if something is uh, true on a smaller scale, it's going to be true on a larger scale. We see Jesus use this type of reasoning in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verse 11. says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? He compares earthly fathers to the light, uh, the lesser. He says, If earthly fathers know how to give good gifts, then how much more will our Heavenly Father who is perfect give good gifts to His children? From the lesser to the heavy uh, is that argument. and uh, The principle also works in the opposite direction. From heavy to light. Turn over uh, just a couple pages to Romans chapter 8 verse 32 where Paul says, He did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What Paul is saying there is, is, if God has given us the greatest gift of his Son, there's nothing else for him to hold back. He points to uh, the heavy, the, the greater idea, and then points to the smaller as also being true. Uh, and that's the type of argument that Paul is going to use twice in our passage this morning. He's, he's going to argue from, from greater to the lesser, from the heavy to the light, and he's also going to use a term, saved, twice in this passage. One in verse 9 and one in verse 10. And it's important for us to understand what he means when he uses that term, saved. So there are three different ways uh, that, that you can use that term in the New Testament. One, you can speak of uh, our past salvation, of being saved in the past, uh, of Christ's redemptive work on the cross, which he purchased uh, for our salvation, Romans eight twenty four is an example of this. For in this hope we were saved. Speaking again, past tense of that moment when we placed our faith in Christ, uh, our past salvation. Then there's the, the present idea of uh, our being saved. Uh, we read that in First Corinthians uh, fifteen. and We also see it uh, in First Corinthians chapter one verse eighteen. It says for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, who are in the process of being saved uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to deliver us from sin in this present life. There's There's a present sense of saved, and there's a past sense of saved. But what Paul is speaking of in our passage today in Romans 5 is going to be a future sense of our salvation. That future point in time when we all have to stand before Christ and give an account for our life. At the final judgment is what Paul is speaking of. We will either escape his wrath because of what Christ has done, or we will pay the penalty for our sins for eternity. So what we want to see this morning, what we want to look at in Romans chapter 5, verses 9, 10, and 11, we're going to see three logical connections that give us assurance that what God began at the cross and confirmed in the resurrection, he will finish... In the future. Look with me at connection number one in verse 9 that our past justification assures us of our future salvation. Our past justification assures us of our future salvation. Paul begins, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood. See, all people are in need of being justified. All people are utterly sinful. And as we look at this paragraph, we spoke about this on Friday, but it's worth repeating. Look at the the words that are used to describe us here in this paragraph. He refers to us as weak in verse 6, as as being helpless, unable to save ourselves. He refers to us as the ungodly at the end of verse 6. In verse 8, he refers to us as sinners. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. And then as we'll see in verse 10, we are enemies of God. We are at war against Him. That that is why we, we need someone to justify us. We need somebody because we stand condemned before a holy God and we are weak, helpless completely powerless to save ourselves, to deliver ourselves from the wrath of God. And that is why Jesus died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us on our behalf. That's that's a fancy theological word there. Justified. Uh, And what Paul is meaning is that all who have believed in Christ, uh, when he says they are justified, he means that they have been declared righteous. So even though we are guilty... Uh, Even though we have sinned and have the stain of sin upon us, Christ died for us and his blood has washed our sins away so that we are no longer viewed by God as being guilty, but as being righteous, as being innocent. Because when Christ uh, died for us, God now looks at us and sees not our sin, but Christ's righteousness. And, And notice two things about that word justified. Number one, it's past tense. It has already taken place. We were justified, referring again to our moment that we have believed in Christ. And then also notice that it is in in the, a passive voice. There's active, middle, and passive. Active is when we perform an action. Passive is when uh, an action is performed upon us. And this is a a passive verb. This is something that is done. To us, that we were justified. We didn't act to justify ourselves. God justified us in Christ. And that justification came about, how that came about is described in those next three little words by his blood. Christ's blood washed away our sin and made us. Righteous. The moment that we believe, the moment that we trusted not in ourselves, but in Christ, our sins are washed away. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, we could not be forgiven. So Christ gave his blood. In the Father's perfect and infinitely wise and good plan, He sent Christ to the cross so that we might be justified, forgiven, declared righteous by His sacrificial death. That is what uh, that is the means of our justification. That that is that is the heavy that Paul is pointing to in his argument. If if God has justified us by the blood of His Son, in the next two words, much. More. There's a comparison here. If God has done this, how much more will he also do what comes next? He's arguing from greater to the lesser. He says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And again, make note of two things about that verb save. Once again, it's, it's passive. It's not something that we are doing. It's something that God is doing for us. And this is Future. This is, again, our final salvation uh, when we stand before God. Uh, And Christ is the one who saves us from the wrath of God because he experienced the wrath of God on our behalf so that we would never have to. Uh, And yet, to a certain extent, our salvation is not fully realized yet, is it? Because right now, what we have is a, is a promise that, that God will, in the future, when we have to stand before Him and give an account, that we will be forgiven on that day. That, that's when our salvation will be completely realized. Turn with me to the last book in the New Testament, Revelation 20. See, if we have believed in Jesus, our sins have been forgiven. But the moment when that forgiveness is most important is what we will read about right here. Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is when our justification is needed most. Right now we have a promise, and at that point in time, our justification will be fully Realize when we have to stand before the judge and the verdict is determined for our fate. Our trial is pending now, but we have a promise of what that verdict will be because Christ died for us and justified us, paid the penalty for our sin. Now, in the, in the United States, we have a law that's commonly known as double jeopardy. Uh, you may have have heard of it. Uh, it's the law that states that uh, if you have been tried for a crime uh, and determined to be innocent, you can't you can't again be tried for that same exact crime. If you if you're put on trial that you have murdered somebody and you're found to be innocent, they can't try you for that exact same crime once again. There, there's uh, a law for that, uh, and that is. That is what we see here, the flow of Paul's argument. He's arguing from greater to lesser, and he's pointing this reality out, that if Jesus has paid for your sins on the cross, they have been paid for. And then at a later point in time, God is not going to condemn you or call you guilty if Christ has already paid for your sins. That would be double jeopardy. Why would you be punished and condemned for what Christ has already paid for? If Jesus has paid for your sins, you can never be condemned for them at the final judgment. John 8.36, Jesus says, If the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. What God began, he will complete. He will not declare you righteous now and then condemn you later. James Montgomery Boyce, like this if God has already justified us on the basis of Jesus' atoning death, if He has already pronounced His verdict, any verdict rendered at the final judgment will be only a confirming formality. We need to to notice that neither of these actions, our justification, our salvation, neither of these verbs, are our doing you didn't justify yourself and you will not save yourself on the last day. We are completely dependent upon God to do what he has promised to do. And Paul's argument is if he has done the first then he will most assuredly do the last. Another pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says the apostle's argument is that this method, this way of salvation that God has planned is a complete whole And therefore, if we have been justified by Christ's blood, we are joined to Christ. We are in Christ. And we shall therefore be saved by him completely and perfectly. What hope and comfort that brings to our souls, amen? That what God finished, or what he began, he will most assuredly And that our righteous standing, our justification, is not in our hands, but in the hands of God. And this is only the first connection, the first part of Paul's argument that he makes here. Look with me at the next verse and see the second connection, the second argument that he makes from greater to lesser. In verse 10, he says, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more... Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? What Paul is saying is that, uh, he says, this introductory statement, if, if while we were enemies of God, uh, and we all were enemies, in rebellion against a holy God, uh, at war against our Creator, even though we could never win that war, there's no possibility of winning our rebellion against God, and yet we continue to act. And yet, instead of exterminating us, right, instead of completely wiping us out for our rebellion, which God absolutely had the right to do, He sent His Son. He, he reconciled us. Look at the verse. He says, If while we were sinners, we were, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Again, notice, we were reconciled. Past tense and past it again not something that we have done but what God has accomplished and notice that our reconciliation came about through the death of his son our justification came by his blood our reconciliation peace with God the peace with God spoken of in Romans 5:1 well Paul says therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, now, if, if uh, a king had a rebellion on his hands, if he has citizens who are rebelling against him, and, they, and, and these citizens have no, no chance of winning in this rebellion, what would that king do? He'd probably just wipe out the rebels, right? Wouldn't that just be the, the normal method of thinking? But what God did with those in rebellion against him, he sent his Son in exchange for those rebels. He says, uh, let me send Jesus to reconcile these rebels to God the Father. This is what God has done for us. He exchanged his perfect, holy Son and made peace with us through his Son. God didn't need to do that. We were in desperate need of someone to make peace for us. But again, going back to verse 6, we were still... Weak. We were still helpless. So what Paul is saying is that while we, if while we were sinners, if our sin could not overcome and restrain God from saving us, how much more will God continue to exercise grace upon us and bring us to that time of final salvation? God has declared that, that reconciliation has taken place in the past uh, for everyone who has believed in his Son. And what Paul is saying is that we can be assured that because he's declared peace in the past, we can also know that when we stand before God, we will be at peace with him, rather than enemies of him at the final judgment. His word is absolutely trustworthy. See, in, in the 1920s, after, after World War I, uh, there were international efforts aimed at at outlawing all wars of aggression. Uh, and, and after what was the, the Great War, the war to end all wars, what we now know as World War I, that seemed like a fantastic idea to the international community. So uh, nations had, no longer had any kind of an appetite for conflict on that magnitude, uh, so the idea of making war illegal, like, man, that sounds amazing. Let's pursue that. So, so after years of discussion and negotiation, on August 27, 1928... Fifteen nations signed uh, what became known as the Kellogg-Briand Pact, or the Pact of Paris, and it agreed upon two clauses. The first outlawed war as an instrument of national policy, and the second called upon the signatories to settle their disputes by peaceful means. And the signatories included France, the United States, the United Kingdom, Ireland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, India, Belgium, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Germany, Italy, and Japan. The the, the agreement was later signed by 47 other nations, and then uh, almost every other established nation in the world agreed to it as well. It was in 1928. However, just three years later, in 1931, Japan invaded China. And nobody responded. Nobody intervened. Nobody did anything. So this, this promise of peace, this, this pact that, hey, we will no longer have wars of aggression. Look at us. Look at how great things will be. This promise of peace did absolutely nothing of what it was intended to accomplish, to, to avoid another conflict like World War I. And, in fact, World War II was just as bad, if not worse. But these were promises of men, and God's promises are not at all like them. What God promises, He will keep. When He says, I have peace with these people, if you place your faith and trust in Christ, you will be reconciled with me. That's what God says. When He declares peace and reconciliation, that is what we will have. And that is what he says. Again, pointing to the future salvation that we have in Christ. This is a a guarantee that if uh, if we have peace in the past, that peace will continue. That the peace that we have with God is a peace that will last. A peace that will endure extending from the moment of your faith and trust in Christ through the eternal future. And how great and glorious are these two truths that Paul lays out in verses 9 and 10. Arguing from from greater to lesser, if God has justified sinners through the blood of his Son, that he will not go back on his word and then condemn us at the final judgment. And if he's made peace with us while we were his enemies, he will not condemn us now that we are his friends or even his adopted children. Because that is how scripture speaks of us. We're not just friends of God. When we place our faith and trust in Christ, we are adopted into his family. We become co-heirs with Christ. God is not going to condemn his adopted children. James Montgomery Boyce again says, each of these arguments is based upon things God has already done for us through the death of Christ. They are great works, justification on the one hand and reconciliation on the other. They are so great that they are used by God to commend his love to us, as Paul stated earlier. But if God has already done such great works on our behalf, justifying us in Christ when we were ungodly, and reconciling us to himself when we were his enemies, God will obviously continue his work on the lesser task of seeing us through life and through the final judgment. It is a much greater miracle to take a rebel and make them a child of God than it is to maintain a child of God in the grace of God until that time when we pass from this life to the next. That is what Paul is saying. If God has done the greater, he will most assuredly do the lesser. Another pastor more succinctly says, if the dying Savior reconciled us to God, Surely the living Savior can and will keep us reconciled. How great the Father's love for us, and how amazing the love of Christ as it has been demonstrated in the cross and in the resurrection. And Paul, he makes these two arguments. He, he presents them to us. And then he also, in this third connection, he's going to show us how we, we should respond to these truths. Look at the amazingness of what God has done for us, and this is how we should respond. Look with me at this third connection in verse 11 of Romans 5. He says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, our our natural response to this fact that we have been justified and reconciled and that's not going to change, we should respond to that with rejoicing. Or the idea of of boasting, that's what the the Greek word literally means, that we should boast in what God has done on our behalf. We should exult in it. We should celebrate it. We should talk about it. These truths assure us that our future salvation is secure because it's not built upon what we have done, but what Christ has done already for us in the past. We have, uh, in the Greek it says, That we have obtained the reconciliation. We have the reconciliation of all reconciliations. We have the peace uh, of all uh, pieces, so to speak. There's no greater peace that we can have. Human relationships are important. When there's strife in human relationships, those are enjoyable times, right? Uh, And when there's strife between us and God, we can't draw near to Him. But now we have peace, reconciliation. We can draw near to God the Father because... His Son has obtained the reconciliation for us. And instead of uh, Paul speaking in the past tense or in the future tense now, what he's saying is, is present. That we should be presently rejoicing at all times because of what Christ has done for us. And to rejoice in God is, is the greatest of all Christian duties. This is what we should focus on first and foremost. Uh, The the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a series of questions and responses that that teach Christian truth. The first question in the catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And this is the response. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But oftentimes it's difficult for us to do that, right? Like, what what is there to enjoy about God? difficult for us as Christians to constantly rejoice in him. So how do we do that? Well, I'll, if you think with me, in the world of Winnie the Pooh, okay, uh, there's two, two characters who are drastically different, right? Uh, you have Eeyore and you have Tigger. Eeyore is an old gray donkey who often loses his long detachable tail, which has a bow on the end of it. Uh, And he is constantly dreary, depressed, pessimistic. And he contrasts him with Tigger, who looks like a tiger, but he's not a tiger. He's a Tigger. Tigger's always cheerful, always bouncing on his tail, always optimistic, cheerful. As Christians, which one of those should we be more like? Eeyore or Tigger? Tigger. We, we know we should be like Tigger, but who are we most often like? Eeyore. Yeah, Christ has died for me. He, he rose again. No, we should rejoice in these things when we think about what Jesus has done for us. He has endured the wrath of God so that we would be saved. His blood purchased our justification so that we would never have to stand before God and be condemned. This is what Christ has done for us. John Stott says this. He says, We should be the most positive people in the world. We cannot mooch around the place with a, a dropping hang dog expression. We cannot drag our way through life moaning and groaning. We cannot always be looking on the dark side of everything as negative prophets of doom. No we rejoice in God. Then every part of our life becomes suffused with glory. Christian worship becomes a joyful celebration of God and Christian living a joyful service of God. So we have to ask on this Sunday that we come ready to rejoice. And we see it in the way that we dress, right? We come ready with bright colors, pastels. Uh, I have like a pink and... Green shirt on with white. I don't normally wear that. uh, But but this is what we come to celebrate. We come to rejoice on this day. But do we rejoice? In the same way that the Apostle Paul assumes that we should rejoice in this passage. He says, We should be rejoicing. Are we? And I want to challenge all of us to think about these great truths that we have seen on Friday night and what we have seen this morning. I want us to to think about them, to to meditate, to to chew on them, to take them them with us as we go this week, to remind ourselves of them on a regular basis today, this week, and for the rest of our lives. One uh, theologian was asked, what's the the deepest thought uh, that you can give me on God? This is one of the most preeminent theologians of the 20th century, and he says, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible, tells me so. We need to spend far more time thinking about what Christ has done for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones asks and answers a great question. He says, What keeps us from rejoicing. And he gives three answers. He says, number one, a failure to grasp the truth of justification by faith alone. He says, we don't rejoice because we don't truly grasp and understand the weight and the depth of that truth that we don't have to work for salvation That it's not based upon the things that you do. It's not your good outweighing your bad, but it's looking to Christ in faith and saying, He is the one who has died for me. And I I need to get off of the hamster wheel of trying to appease God in my own strength and simply trust in Christ's sacrifice. That's the first answer he gives to why we don't rejoice. The second, he says, a failure to meditate as we ought to That is a failure to think about what we do know of these truths. When was the last time you just put aside your phone, put aside uh, your, your TV or all of your other distractions and just set time aside to sit and think about the gospel. To think about your standing before God as a sinner. And that if you don't know Christ, you will have to Stand before God in what we read in Revelation 20. If the earth runs away from that throne, how do the people feel standing at that throne? We Think about that. If not for Christ, we would be standing in that place of judgment, having to answer for all that we've done. Which is a scary thought, right? When those books are open and everything that we've said, every, uh, every action that we have performed is, is laid bare and, and, and opened, and we are judged based upon those things. If we do not know Christ, that is how we will be judged. But if we know Christ, we are not judged based upon those things, but we are judged based upon what Christ has done on the cross. And then when God looks at us at that moment, at that time, he sees not our sinfulness, but Christ's righteousness. We need to think and meditate about what we know of the gospel. Let that sink in. And then number three of what Dr. Lloyd-Jones says is that a failure to draw the necessary conclusions from Scripture. Sometimes we, we, we don't draw the right conclusions. We, we miss the weight and the gravity of our salvation. Or we miss completely what its implications are. We need to think about these things. And some of you might be hearing these truths for the first time today. Some of you not, may not be able to rejoice. Some of you may have heard these truths before, but you're holding out. And in the hardness of your heart, you are continuing to reject what Christ has done. And I would plead with you, beg with you, don't trust in yourself. Look to Christ in faith. Repent. Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, the all-sufficient sacrifice, who gave his life so that you might not have to stand before God in the future and be condemned. And if you have questions about that, if you say, I want to know more, I want to know Christ in the way that you described, I want to know Christ in a way that I can rejoice over my future salvation, please come speak with me after this. Speak with Pastor Bruce. Speak with someone who invited you here today. We would love to share all that Christ has done for you. What we have seen this morning, we've, we've seen these connections that show us the, the, the height, the depth, and the, and the breadth of God's love for us and the assurance that we can have of our salvation. All right, these, are, these are great reasons for us to be assured. Uh, the sacrificial death of, our, of God the Son, uh, the unchanging Word of God the Father, these are reasons for us to rejoice. But on this day, of all Sundays. And every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. We have to get that in our minds. But on this day, we also have to celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the grave. You you might have noticed that there were three words at the end of verse 10 that I kind of sped past. Look with me at the end of verse 10. We shall be saved, or shall we be saved, what are those last three words? By His life. And that could refer to the the righteous life that Christ lived, which again is placed upon us. That's the exchange that took place at the cross. We gave Christ our sin. He gave us his righteousness. Not a fair trade, but we'll take it. That's the exchange that took place. And this, this could refer to that of that we will live by his life, yes, by his righteousness. But, Another idea is that Paul is pointing here to the resurrection of Jesus, that his son being raised back to life shows us that God the Father accepted the sacrifice of the Son, that our reconciliation and justification have been uh, approved by God the Father, so to speak. The, The resurrection is the receipt of that transaction. Uh, God's stamp of approval. Yes, Christ's sacrifice has been accepted for his people, and I'll prove it by raising him from the dead. That is what we see in the resurrection. And, and we spoke of logical arguments today, from the lesser to the greater. But let's look at one more. Turn with me back over to uh, the scripture that was read for us today. 1 Corinthians 15. Here's a logical argument for you. How do we know that what Jesus promises, that he is able to forgive our sins, that he is able to raise us again on the last day, because that is what he has promised to do. How do we know that he can actually do those things? Those are big promises, right? To say, I can forgive sin, that I, have, I can conquer sin and death. Those are lofty promises of Christ. How do we know that He can actually do them? Well, we know that He can do them because He did it, (laughs) because He Himself was raised. Look at me, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. See, what's amazing here is, again, Paul wanted to remind them of the Gospel, Hey, you already know this, but let me, let me speak it to you again. He reminded them, and then he gave them two things that are of first importance. And what were they? That Christ died for us in accordance with the Scriptures, prophesied in the Old Testament. And the second was that he was raised again on the third day in fulfillment of those same Scriptures. And he said those are of first importance because if you take away those two things... If you take away this weekend from our Christian faith, what do we have? Nothing. That's what, that's what Paul continues uh, in this passage. He, he cites, here's all of the people who have seen the risen Christ. He names the apostles. He, he names 500 uh, more disciples who saw Jesus. He, he, he mentions himself. And then he says, but if Jesus hasn't been raised, he says our faith is in vain. You see, there is no Christianity without the cross, and there is no Christianity without the resurrection. Those two things that we are most familiar with, right? They're the ones that we can say, I, I already know about that. Those are the two things that are of the most important nature. We must focus upon them. We must dwell upon them and and think about them more and more and understand the depth of what took place that weekend so many years ago. And I love the way Paul ends or concludes or actually begins the next paragraph in verse 20. He says, all of these hypotheticals, if Christ hasn't been raised, we are of all people most To be pitied. But then, how does he begin verse 20? He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is just the beginning of the resurrection. The new humanity that God is saving and redeeming a people for himself. Christ is just the, the foretaste of that. And that we are it. We're the rest of the fruit. Christ is the first fruit. We're the rest, and we can't wait for that. And because we see Jesus rising from the grave, we can have assurance that we too will one day be raised to newness of life. That our salvation, our justification, our reconciliation with God won't somehow change from the point of our faith in Christ to the final judgment when we stand before Him. We don't have to worry about falling through the cracks. What God began in us, he will complete. Our salvation is all of God and completely secure. Christ is risen, and one day we will rise with him to newness of life. And may we agree with the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. May we rejoice in that today, this week, and for the remainder of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are... Our Creator, you are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. We owe everything to you because you have given us life. And in your perfect plan, you have saved us. Lord, you have done it. We have not. We were your enemies. We were the ungodly. We were sinners. And in the middle of our sinful rebellion against you, you sent your Son to die for us. To justify us by His blood. To reconcile us with you by His death. Lord, may we trust in your promises that what you have performed in the past assures us that you will complete our salvation in the future. Lord, may we think about that, and Lord, may we rejoice in those truths that you will finish what you have started. That you have saved us. You have promised salvation. You will complete our salvation. Lord, may we rejoice in that truth, and may our hearts be heavy for those who do not know you, for those who who rest not in your grace, but in your wrath. Lord, in our rejoicing, may we also have the gospel on our lips. And may we carry it forth with our feet, proclaiming the message, being faithful ambassadors of your word. So that others might come to know Christ in a saving way. That they might come to look upon him as Lord, as Savior, turning from sin and turning to him in faith. Lord, I pray that we would meditate upon the truth of the gospel, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. May we think about that. And may that dramatically impact our lives and our joy for all the world to see. Lord Jesus, we thank you for conquering sin and the grave, for overcoming death on our behalf. We praise you, we thank you, and we celebrate you today and every Sunday. And we ask these things of God the Father in your name.